And we're live. Welcome, everybody. This is the Reality Czars podcast, and we're your hosts tonight, Nate and Thomas. What up? That's me, the Paranoid American. And we have Kyle Anzalone on. Hey, brother. How are you? Doing great, guys. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, this is your first time on the show. Why don't you tell our audience a little bit about yourself and where they can find you? Yeah, so I am the opinion editor of antiwar.com. So I put together the viewpoints on that website every day, the spotlight article. Uh, that's me. And then at the Libertarian Institute, I'm the news editor. So I write uh, a daily news roundup for the site. Almost every day I write a news article for the site. And then I also put out my show, Conflicts of Interest. So uh, that's where you can find me. I've been doing all that for about four years now. Hell yeah, dude. And then when we first started talking before we started recording, I noticed that I recognized your voice. You used to have a show called Foreign Policy Focus, right? Yep. Uh, that was my show. I did about 550 episodes of that show. And then I changed it into a like a video show as well. And I also renamed it to Conflicts of Interest. Because uh, I, I felt like, you know, the show, we focus on things outside of foreign policy, like Russiagate, uh, that are very tied in with foreign policy. But I, I think more people are interested in than they would be if it was just a, a foreign policy show. And so I changed the name to Conflicts of Interest. And uh, yeah, uh, a lot of times Connor Freeman is the co-host of the show. And then I have Will Porter, my guy on the back end, always helping me out with like notes and uh, just figuring out, you know, what to talk about during the shows and stuff. Hell yeah. I know Will. He's fucking awesome. Great dude. Uh, well, thank you for so much for coming on, man. Um, like I said, I don't necessarily have an agenda. We can just like kind of shoot the shit and have fun. Uh, and then I probably have some questions about like what's going on in the world as far as like bricks. Cause I just heard like Saudi Arabia stopped using the American dollar. I don't know how much of that you're fucking keeping up on. Like that seems pretty important. Uh, they might be needing some freedom soon, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so yeah, so I think the big thing with Saudi Arabia is that they joined the Shanghai or applied to join the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which is this uh, Chinese-founded Eurasian, uh, really now global uh, trade organization that I, I think is meant to be uh, something of a counter to like a U.S. central uh, federal, uh, you know, Federal Reserve note kind of, of uh, worldwide currency system. And so I don't think this means that Saudi Arabia is no longer using the dollar overall. But I think we're going to start to see Saudi Arabia do more bilateral trade and, you know, w with oil priced in uh, the Chinese currency or uh, you know, wh whatever, whoever they're trading with, they may do like just bilateral or, you know, they could price, it, I guess, everything the Chinese you want. But I, I think at this point, we're just going to see it, you know, start off small. And then depending on how the U.S. continues to work, it's like global financial empire. We're going, you know, what we've seen is more and more countries kind of drift towards the Shanghai Cooperation Organization because the U.S. sanctions on so many different countries around the world uh, that all these countries have essentially formed their own network uh, with the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. And look, even Turkey is becoming a member of that because, you know, just uh, every all their important trading partners, you know, main countries in the region are uh, under U.S. sanctions. And so, you know, they got to find a way to get the trade done or else it's really going to hurt their economy. So, you know, they, they have... Uh, ties with Russia, Iran, China, and all the, you know, they're going to increase that trade uh, as a part of that group. 
Yeah, man, that's some wild shit. Um, how do you think the American Empire is going to react to this? I mean, it was a it was a given that this was going to have to happen eventually. Like you said, like we've been we've been the bully on the fucking schoolyard for so long, uh, and we bullied almost everybody at this point that eventually, like people are going to team up against the bully, right? Like, what do you think? Uh, what do you see the empire? What, how do you see their reaction? Especially under someone like Biden that just kind of seems like, I don't, I don't play the fucking right left shit, but Joe Biden seems especially inept at, at like navigating things like this and negotiating. Right. It's not just Joe Biden. It's his entire foreign policy team. When they took office uh, on my show, we were talking about how this was essentially the JV team from the Obama administration. All the deputies, all the assistants are now in the full-on position of power. And, you know, I've been a little bit confused as to if there is like one kind of directed foreign policy where everybody sits down in a room and they're saying, okay, we're supporting Ukraine and this is the way it impacts our uh, Korea policy, our Venezuela policy, our Iran policy, our uh, China policy, or if basically you have like people with different fiefdoms, right? So like Mark Milley is making the decisions as chairman of the Joint Chiefs that he wants for like this area of the world. Victoria Newland, uh, the Undersecretary of State, is focused on Ukraine. So, you know, she doesn't really care what's going on in Taiwan or something like that. Maybe she's solely focused there. And that's kind of why I'm worried about is that essentially you have an administration that is so inept, it, it can't even like figure out that, look, you, you can't fight uh, Russia and Ukraine and China and Taiwan at the same time. You, you know, we even have members of Congress and the military coming out saying that the ammunition just isn't there. We can't make that much ammunition uh, to fight those same conflicts at the same time. And so I, I think there's a lot of questions as to how they're going to react based on how that actually works. And you would hope that there is somebody in the Biden administration who knows who it would be, maybe the CIA director, William Burns, who does have some kind of sane view on the outlook of the world and is going to sit down and say, look, we can't maintain maximum pressure sanctions on North Korea, Russia, China, Iran, Venezuela, Cuba, and, you know, four or five other small nations, because all those nations are just going to trade with each other. And then they're going to bring in their close trading partners. And our sanctions are going to become increasingly ineffective, right? Like you, you can have somebody had that view and then they could say, look, we really want to prioritize sanctions on Russia. So we're going to drop sanctions. We're going to drop the trade war with China because we really just want to isolate Russia. That's something that at least, you know, I, I'm not saying I support that, but like practically that kind of makes sense. What I think we're going to see, though, is basically like almost a cartoon, right, where you have somebody who's holding too much. And rather than just like putting a couple things down and carrying what they can, they just keep taking on more and more and more. And so I, I do worry that, you know, maybe a country like Turkey, Saudi Arabia, uh, if they do become too engrossed in the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, they do develop too many ties with Russia and China. Uh, you know, the U.S. would look at that and say, OK, now we got to sanction Saudi Arabia. Now we got to sanction Turkey. And that's just going to further undermine the U.S. dollar. So we'd be fucked. 
we can't sanction Saudi Arabia. We need them to uphold the petrodollar. But right? did I did I just hear the <laughs> we're kind of waiting for the CIA to pull us out of this or to, to so, be the, the straight man in the conversation? So not necessarily the CIA, but particularly the CIA director, William Burns. He's a former diplomat, and he uh, is kind of famous for writing a memo uh, to his then boss, Condoleezza Rice, in 2008, explaining that for Russia, Russians in general, not Vladimir Putin, not a bunch of hots in the Kremlin, but for Russians, Ukraine NATO membership is a red line and crossing that red line will lead to war. And so there, I, I think there is some realistic hope that this is one of the more sensible people in the administration. I think the CIA, uh, you know, at, at its head ha actually kind of pushed out the idea that Havana syndrome wasn't real pretty recently. And so, look, this, the CIA is terrible. They do terrible things all over the world. However, there are occasionally times where the CIA uh, in, in its leadership is just going to, you know, not make the situation work. And William Burns is one of the more reasonable people. And look, even if you have a lunatic at the head of the CIA, like Mike Pompeo, who was planning on how he was going to kidnap Julian Assange and shoot out the tires on a Russian plane as they tried to fly Julian Assange out of the UK or something like that. But at the same time, when Trump really, really escalated tensions with North Korea, the CIA put out a report saying that Kim Jong-un isn't crazy. He doesn't want a nuclear war with the US. And after that, Trump started to take a more diplomatic approach with North Korea that led to some real diplomatic success. So you know, I'm, I'm not defending the CIA here. <laughs> That's not why I do. But, you know, you can't just be black and white on the issue. And sometimes, you know, good things can't come out of the CIA. Reasonable things can't come out of the CIA. And when you have an administration full of absolute lunatics like Victoria Newland, William Burns is probably one of the more sane people in the room during most of these conversations. Interesting, man. What what happens when the CIA guy is the most rational person in the room in one of these situations? It's, well, it's a little scary of a concept. Absolutely. That's how you end up in, you know, a proxy war with Russia, a cold war with China while you're trying to enforce a regime change in Iran and Syria and Venezuela and Cuba. Right. You have all these impossible foreign policy demands. And yes, yeah, because the, the CIA director right now, next to Joe Biden, are probably the two most sane people on foreign policy in the room. And I guess, you know, when we say Joe Biden there, it's just depending on how well his dementia meds are working that day on how sane he actually is. Yeah. Um, I had a real quick question based off something you said there. You said that Mike Pompeo wanted to fucking blow Julian Assange out of the sky if he was trying to go to Russia. I'm just curious, like, do they still see him as a threat or are they just fucking punishing him at this point? Are they just like, because, dude, he's clearly not well any longer. Like, is this, are they just exacting revenge because they're angry or do they have to, like, make a an example out of him is that what they're trying to do because it doesn't seem like he's hell like much of a threat any longer yeah so i i think there's probably like three factors here one is inertia <laughs> you know the state you know started the prosecution so they continue the prosecution right you know at, at this point the u.s government for whatever reason nobody feels like they could ever bat down on anything and so if they you know started then they have to finish it and they have to go through with it 
I do think they're trying to make an example of Assange. And look, you know, it is terrifying what they're doing to him and how they've ruined his life. And, you know, that he's like had many strokes in the courtroom that the CIA has spied on him, plotted to assassinate him, poison him, kill him. Uh, they, you know, try to they went as far as trying to steal a diaper from a kid in the embassy who was Julian Assange's kid. But they're trying to get DNA off the diaper to confirm that was Assange's kid. So just crazy things that they have done. But then I, I think there's a little bit more of a practical purpose to it as well, which is this does tie up a lot of money, you know, rightfully. Right. Like people in the independent media you know, who support Julian Assange, who support WikiLeaks are donating, you know, to his defense fund to help, you know, to, to try to help him and defeat these charges, which, you know, if it goes through, it would be terrible for all of us. But at the same time, imagine if WikiLeaks didn't have to bear that burden, even if, you know, 10 years ago, Julian Assange just got sick and wasn't able to do the work that he was doing before, you know, the idea that, you have to dump millions of dollars into this defense campaign and tie up basically everybody's time and PR associated with WikiLeaks and trying to free Assange really kneecaps what that organization can achieve. And I mean, they have done, you know, really important things while Julian Assange was in jail and while he was in the Ecuadorian embassy. But, you know, I can only imagine how much better the world would be if Assange wasn't behind bars right now. And what WikiLeaks would be dropping, say, about the proxy war in Ukraine, about where these weapons are going, if uh, you know he wasn't behind bars and WikiLeaks wasn't spending all their time trying to get him free. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, the last time we had Scott on, this was probably, I think it was two days before Russia invaded the Ukraine. And he came on here to tell us that Russia was not going to invade the Ukraine. <laughs> and it was just, it's funny. But um, what's going on there now? And why the, why the hell do you think the United States is still in the Ukraine? Is this, I mean, is this just to kind of draw Russia out, trying to get them to expend energy, resources, things like that? Or do we actually have things of importance in the Ukraine? Are we trying to cover things up? I've heard things about pharmaceutical companies. I've heard things about trafficking. I've heard things about like ties with the Biden family. Like I, like what, in your opinion, obviously you don't have a fucking magic ball. Uh, what do you think the hell's going on there? So I, I'm sure that the corruption within the Biden family, uh, you know, Hunter Biden did have a job with Burisma, Ukrainian gas company that he got after 2014, the U.S. orchestrated coup in Ukraine, put a coup government in place. Uh, Victoria Newland was famously recorded uh, on a call. Uh, she was then, I think, the U.S. ambassador to the European Union, and she was recorded on a call with Jeffrey Pyatt, who was an American diplomat, talking about how uh, they were uh, working on putting a coup together. They listed off who was going to become uh, the new government of Ukraine. They said that President, uh, Vice President, excuse me, at the time, Joe Biden was going to midwife it. And so after that coup goes through, his son ends up with, with a position on the board of a Ukrainian natural gas company, Burisma. Guy doesn't speak Ukrainian. Uh, his job you know, resume, I think, consists of getting kicked out of the Navy I believe it was the Navy for drug use. Uh, he doesn't have any experience with energy trade or anything like that at all. So this is pretty clearly a corrupt contract. There's 
this very famous video of Joe Biden talking about how the U.S. leveraged a billion dollars in IMF uh, loans to Ukraine to get a prosecutor general in Ukraine fired. And that prosecutor general was looking at Burisma, the, the company that Biden's uh, son was on the board of. Now, do I think that's enough? to get the U.S. to wage a $100 million proxy war in Ukraine? Probably not. There's a lot of other interests going on here. Trafficking, corruption. $100 million. About how about $100 billion. Yeah. yeah. I think the official number is $113 billion. If you look at the Kiel Institute, uh, it's a German institute. It, it's pretty pro-Western. Uh, but they have the military aid that the U.S. has spent in Ukraine quite a bit higher than the U.S. claims. I think it's over 50 billion on that website. And the U.S. is like saying it's in the 20s or 30s. So my guess is that it's well over 100 billion uh, that the U.S. has given Ukraine so far. But, um, you know, I don't think that's, you know, that the Biden corruption is enough to create that, you know, this massive push uh, towards, you know, uh, helping Ukraine. You know, again, I think inertia is a part of it. You know, this was the policy that they staked out pre-war that we are going to support Ukraine for as long as it takes. And so if you stop supporting Ukraine, you bat down from that. And anytime you bat down, you look weak. And and that's going to be the narrative that comes out in the U.S. media. So the Biden administration is going to avoid it for that reason. But I think the main reason is, and there's a 2019 RAND report uh, that goes into this. And it basically explains that uh, the U.S. wants to bait Russia into a war in Ukraine because that's the way they could weaken Russia. And ultimately, this is to set the United States up to confront China uh, without a strong Russia to back it. And, and so I, I really think that <laughs> this is crazy, right? And it, it all goes back to Beijing, that, that that's really what they're concerned about, even though they're waging a, a proxy war in Ukraine. But I, I do think that's a lot of it, that they're worried about China and that they want to weaken Russia so that will give them, in their minds, a, a better position against China. Of course, you know, wasting all this money in uh, Ukraine doesn't help anything with China whatsoever. I've got a question that's that's more serious than it sounds. Okay. Um, but was Patton right? <laughs> like when Patton wanted to just keep pushing through and take out, you know, the Soviets, should we have just you know, done it at that point, or would that have been just a horrible play, do you think? I don't think it took the Soviets that long to build the nuclear bomb, so I'm guessing it would have been a pretty horrible play, but we have to, like, actually go back and look at the timeline and, and see, because, uh, you know, that that's obviously my first concern, is nuclear warfare breaking out of the, the U.S. have pushed there, um, but, you know, who, who knows? The, the people of Ukraine... It, want to be a part of russia and so you know even had the u.s taken it not not all of ukraine obviously i'm talking about the crimean peninsula and the donbass region so you know even had the u.s pushed in 70 80 years is a long time for the you know country to reorient itself bad towards russia because you know i think it was a majority russian-speaking country uh before the the 2014 u.s coup and the new government coming in really cracking down on the russian culture you also mentioned how ukraine is or there's you know some claims that are saying it's about 50 billion the u.s is saying ah maybe it's more 20 30 billion usually when there's discrepancies that large uh, it's just asking for a plane to just slam right into the records keeping office uh, and just kind of wipe away some of that that proof right and i'm thinking that the next move 
if they really want to go with this central bank blockchain technology, what do you think? Like, how do they cover up the records, right? Because one big half of this digital, you know, blockchain technology is that you've got a ledger that lasts potentially forever and decentralized, which means that there's not going to be just a server or a section of the Pentagon you can just take out and be like, oh, I don't know where that 20 billion to, was it 20 billion? Was it 50 billion? I guess we'll never know, right? Uh, so I, I wonder is, is, do you think there's like a back door built in so they can still do all this? Do you think that they're going to do like a takedown so that they can two birds with one stone it, like take out crypto and take out, uh, you know, corruption at the same time? Like, do you have any thoughts on any of that? Yeah, so I guess a couple things first off is I think a lot of things once they get to Ukraine, they just disappear and the Pentagon straight up admitted that they just take Ukraine's word for wherever these weapons, you know, they, they say, oh, that yeah, they they went to Bakhmut to fight the Russians there. This is the well, Operation knows, Iraqi but... Freedom Strategy where we just strap, you know, like pallets full of raw cash and just like, eh. I'm sure they'll figure something out to do with it. Yeah, no, and there's a lot of money just flowing right into Ukraine. A lot of the the hundred billion dollars is just financial assistance, and my guess is a lot of it is just cash. Now, I'm sure there's some of it where the U.S. is buying things for Ukraine. There was a scandal a few months ago where a bunch of Ukrainian ministers got relieved of their post uh, because. You know, say they were buying a hundred pounds of food, well, they're paying for a thousand pounds of food, right? So they they're overpaying by ten. Where's all that money going? All these you know corrupt changes of hands and things like that's going on. Um, where was I going with this? What was the overall question? Well, that that was one half of it, and the other half was um, you know blockchain because usually when there's a discrepancy oh. about all that amount of money, when there's $20 billion missing, there's usually a fire or an explosion or a something happens that wipes out that record keeping department. But with the decentralized way of going about things, where do you fly that plane into to erase $30 billion of debt? So like, you don't even have to do that, right? Because there's so much media control. You know, we've spent over a hundred billion. The, the Congress has authorized spending a hundred billion dollars in Ukraine, and they don't even have a single employee in the Pentagon who's supposed to oversee that, right? There, there's no special investigative general like there was for the Afghan war. You know, John Sopko's office did a lot of really good work. The reason we know uh, a lot of, you know, those failures in Afghanistan, the, the weapons being lost, direct payments to the Taliban uh, for security and stuff like that. That's because of that office. And just last week, Congress uh, voted on that. And I think there was like a couple Republicans who voted for it. It was like Josh Hawley and, you know, the, the group of decent Rand Paulish Republicans who voted for it. But look, you know, I think we're at a point where the media has, you know, kind of led a really large chunk of the country to believe that even questioning the aid to Ukraine is a Russian talking point. So that makes you a Trumpist, that makes you a racist, that makes you a bigot. And so we can't question it. And, you know, I there's just a lot of power and narrative point, control. And I just say hashtag rooting for Putin. Even though I don't give a shit and I don't want anything to do with it, I just say that just to piss people off. Um, but uh, it, I know that's stupid. Um, what the fuck was I going to ask? Oh, I someone like Mitch McConnell, Mitch, my stupid asshole, Connell said that money or like funding for the Ukraine is America's number one issue. 
What so, the fuck is that about? This is one of those things when followed by NPR, right? <laughs> yeah, and dem, anytime Republicans and Democrats agree on something, you know something's fucked. Yeah, someone's getting paid. Well, you know, this is obviously just a stupid thing he's saying, and I'm sure in two weeks, whatever's the most important thing in his mind will probably change. And I'll go back to Ukraine in a couple weeks, too. But uh, if, say, there's a bunch of war games going on uh, by China's carrying out some war games or military drills around Taiwan like uh, there was last summer after Pelosi's visit, well, then arming Taiwan and supporting Taiwan is going to become the most important issue if there's strikes uh, on American soldiers by Shia militants in the Middle East, then confronting Iran's the most important issue. It just it it cycles, and Mitch McConnell's just you know a political hack who lives by the minute minute and says whatever you know his staffers put in front of them that they think a politically popular thing to say. Um, Dude, how awesome would that have been if Nancy Pelosi would have got smoked? I mean, not really. Just this is for entertainment purposes only. But <laughs> in Minecraft, in Minecraft, I mean, actually, it would have caused a bunch of issues. But the memes would have been fantastic. Uh, so uh, that would have been great. Um, what the fuck's going on in Taiwan right now? So Taiwan, I I've heard things at least that Taiwan is super serious about their defense. And that they have basically like a suicide pact. Like if China comes, like the their amount of like defense, they they're like fucking ready, and they'll take themselves out before they give themselves to China. I don't know how real that is. Um, and they are geo strategically necessary right now, right? Because they basically make all of the something important. What is, some sort of chip or something. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, there, there's a lot to unpack there. I guess, you know, the current situation with Taiwan is tensions are high between uh, Taipei and Beijing. And this is largely because under the Biden administration, the U.S. has uh, uh, essentially abandoned. They, they say we still support the one China policy, but they've abandoned it. And this is the agreement that Nixon put in place when the U.S. opened up with China that basically... Uh, has maintained the the U.S. China Taiwan relationship, where the U.S. and Beijing agree that Taiwan is a part of China, and the little like kind of wink from the U.S. perspective is that yeah, it's the same political entity. We just think the Taiwanese political entity should be the you know governing of all of China, where Beijing says you know we should govern Taiwan. Do we really think that is that? Is that really a thing? So the Biden administration, Joe Biden said four times that the U.S. would defend Taiwan if China invaded. So that's that's abandoning yeah. and walking away from the, the one China policy. Now, Joe Biden says a lot of stuff. And so a couple months ago, his direct back as soon as he said that, too, though, like he's he's really so like the first couple times the White House came out and walked it back. And I believe it was the fourth time where the Air Force secretary frank kendall i believe came out and basically said no that's the policy and then a couple months ago the director of national intelligence avril haynes said that was the policy and okay. so it, it's pretty official at this point uh and then of course you know there's been a lot more high level meetings between the u.s and taiwan and china sees this as america backing taiwanese independence and so when nancy pelosi went to taipei and uh, August last year, they they carried out drills around the island of Taiwan, 
And while a lot of people think that there would be a Chinese invasion of Taiwan, I think China's first move would actually be to blockade the island and basically try to uh, force it into, you know, capitulating with Beijing's desires. I'm not saying this would be a good thing, but I just a lot of people make it sound like, oh, you know, it's either going to be a Chinese invasion or nothing. And there's a lot of you know, in between steps that could happen, including, you know, China carrying out some missile strikes or something like that. There are actually a lot of islands that are a part of like the Taiwanese governance that are only a few miles off of Beijing. I think some of them you could see from, I want to say Shanghai or another uh, pretty prominent Chinese city on the coast. Like you could see the Taiwanese islands from the Chinese coastline. And so it's possible that China could, you know, seize these small islands that you know i think they're mostly military positions another thing that you mentioned there was uh how uh, taiwan is re ready to go to the map for this and that i don't think is really the case among the whole taiwanese population uh while the party of the current president of taiwan um has won elections and and does seem to be fairly popular it does seem to me to be like kind of a Democrat Republican situation in the U.S. where the opposition party will win elections uh, and the, the president of uh, Taiwan, I believe, not not the, the former president of Taiwan, who is a member of the opposition party who looks more towards reunifying with Beijing than uh, establishing firmer ties with the United States, recently traveled to China and, uh, you know, met with the Chinese leadership. And so there are a lot of people in Taiwan who... Uh, see themselves as, you know, ethnically one people with the Chinese people. And so, you know, the idea that uh, everybody in Taiwan would just fight, you know, to their last breath to defend against the Chinese invasion, I don't think that's true. And then Daniel Davis, who was a lieutenant colonel who did a lot of really important work in Afghanistan, uh, talked about in an article, I believe it was published in November of 2022 at this website, 19. Uh, 1945, I believe is the, the website. And uh, he, he basically said that two thirds of Taiwan's uh, defense positions on their coastline aren't defended because of a lack of manpower, uh, because not that many people want to sign up for the military. So that was suggest to me that there's not that much interest uh, in, you know, Taiwan, you know, fighting the way that the Ukrainians have, uh, you know, basically, you know, fighting China to the last Taiwanese or something like that. Uh, and then, Taiwan does have though some deterrent capabilities. They developed a fleet of submarines that I think could uh, reach depth of about two thousand uh, kilometers, which, which I believe is pretty significant. And that uh, if you look at the area off of Taiwan's, I guess that would be east coast, is pretty deep water, and so they would have a lot of retaliatory capability to hit back against China. Uh, I don't think that the semiconductor stuff is as important as people say. There's an article by Dub Bondow going through it all and explaining basically that, you know, there are a lot of other places where either this technology is being developed or already exists. And of course, you know, I'm a libertarian. I'm a capitalist. I, I would think that if the Taiwanese market for uh, semiconductors dried up, you know, they would build plants in other places in the world and, and fairly quickly uh, and, and, you know, be able to meet that supply for something that's so important and so valuable. Yeah, that is interesting, man. I, I, don't, I don't even 
completely understand what the fuck a semiconductor is, to be honest with you. But it seems like if they're so strategically important, why the hell aren't a whole bunch of places making these? Like, yeah, I, I think really a lot of it's just rhetoric around the idea that it's only in China and are only in Taiwan. Again, they, they've opened up a couple. I think even the Taiwanese company that makes the semiconductors recently opened up a, a factory, I want to say in Phoenix or somewhere in Arizona. And, and so they are making more of that in the United States now. Oh, do we lose Nate? Oh, maybe he's frozen. <laughs> I was waiting for somebody to talk. Uh, even with this Ethernet cable, I'm still having some internet issues. <clears throat> there you are. <clears throat> nope, or halfway, at least. See, that's what happens when you get those Chinese Ethernet halfway. cables, man. You need, the, you need the Taiwanese Ethernet cables. I'm talking about the CCP, and now they're back in the <laughs> going after your internet connection. There, and I'm curious. I got a, a question that I can sneak in here while we wait for Nate to to clean up his act. And if if China really did want to make a move on Taiwan, um, would it not be a strategic moment now, or are we not involved enough? in ukraine for us to really be hurting that bad or another way to ask this is at what point do does the u.s bring war bonds back so you know i i have thought a little bit about this because there was a lot of rhetoric around well once russia invades ukraine then china's gonna invade taiwan to right. to put america on the second front and if you do look at like america's ammunition stockpiles and things like that 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 is severely lacking however I think the kind of warfare that you would see fight in Taiwan versus um, Ukraine is quite a bit different, given that uh, Russia has a land border with Ukraine and Taiwan has a pretty large, I think, 80 miles or so. It's about the distance from the U.S. to Cuba between mainland China and Taiwan. And so, I mean, obviously, you know, that that's just a different set of munitions that you're going to use, you know, more naval assets, uh, more air defense systems longer range missiles and i think that the u.s would have in in a lot of ways rightfully so less reservations about sending more advanced weapons to taiwan versus ukraine uh you know the u.s claims it doesn't happen but there, there are a lot of neo-nazis in the ukrainian army and i think there's a lot of reasons that the u.s has been very cautious about the weapons that it sends ukraine and i don't think they would feel that they have to be as cautious with taiwan uh, about what kind of weapons they send. So, uh, yes and no. Well, like, what maybe, do you think would make us more cautious about giving neo-Nazi Ukrainians weapons, but we weren't as cautious about, say, you know, the Taliban or or the previous iteration of the Taliban? I mean, so we're Al Qaeda. There's a lot of like, you know, white people from around the world that have gone to Ukraine to fight. And I'm sure those people are kind of a little bit harder to track in Western countries than Muslims uh, from the Middle East. They they just stand out a little bit less. And so I think that's one of the threats. Another one is that the arms smuggling goes back into Europe, where 
you know, Afghanistan's in the middle of nowhere. Of course, you know, arms could get smuggled all over the world, but, you know, there's a lot of instability and insurgency in Pakistan, in uh, Kashmir, in Iran, in Iraq. So, you know, there's plenty of places for the weapons to get chewed up before they, you know, start killing other white people, where Finland has already talked about finding uh, weapons that were intended for the Ukraine war, uh, you know, being used by games in that country. I think the same thing happened in Italy, too. So, uh, you know, I think that's a, a big part of it. And then Ukraine is pretty renowned for weapons smugg smuggling. So Taiwan doesn't have quite those issues. Dude, what a time to be alive, to be like a gangster in like Eastern Bloc in Europe. You're just getting loaded, tons of cash flowing, new awesome toys, like, Dude, they're living their best life right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot of really disgusting people in Ukraine getting very rich off of all of this. Uh, I, I guess one other thing I just add to the, the China invasion of Taiwan, I don't think, and, and I guess I don't even think the Pentagon assesses that Thai, China currently has the capabilities to invade Taiwan, if, if you're looking at, again, moving that much military personnel across the Taiwan Strait, there's a lot of ships. That's, you know, a lot of, um, you know, different uh, defenses that you're going to need to set up to make sure all those boats aren't just hit by Taiwanese missiles. And so it's a very complex operation that requires a lot of military equipment. I think for a long time, we are hearing from the Pentagon that 2027, 2032, was kind of the numbers that they were kicking around. I, I've seen now uh, people within the military put out the the date 2025, but we're, we're still looking at least a couple of years before anybody thinks China would even have the military capability to, to attempt the operation. And again, I, I think they would lead with a blockade, which would probably be a lot easier to defend for them and uh, would be far less expensive. What, what I've heard, at least, about the Chinese military in general is obviously it's enormous, but uh, that the majority of their equipment is pretty second rate as far as like planes and like any sort of like air force that it's pretty fucking sad. Um, and that even like a their Navy isn't really up to fucking snuff. Um, is any of that true? And then I'm also curious about like the West response, like if I was China why wouldn't I think I could just take Taiwan when we basically just like closed our eyes and let them take Hong Kong? So China uh, has, uh, you know, their military strategy is uh, and capabilities are built around this idea of area access, area denial. I think they call it A2D2. And the idea is basically to be able to defend within like 100 miles or so of their coastline. And so rather than having 12 aircraft carriers, China has two. Uh, they have a lot of ships in their fleet, but they're very small ships. Uh, they're not like they don't have a massive blue water Navy or anything like that. As, uh, you know, the U.S. has far more tonnage of ships, even if they have fewer than China does. The, the American ships are huge and, you know, could sail across the Pacific Ocean and, you know, help Taiwan fight a war against China where China doesn't have the ability to, to you know, fl uh, float their Navy across the ocean and you know, attack Hawaii or anything like that. So, um, uh, you know, I think that's one of the differences now, uh, as far as it goes with uh, Hong Kong versus uh, Taiwan, I, I think 
you, you know, China likes to play the long game. And, you know, it took them decades to, you know, really cement their political power in Hong Kong. And again, uh, whenever you're dealing with a land border, it's just a different situation as far as what you could pull off versus what you can't, where, you know, Taiwan is very far. They have more of an independent political system that that really doesn't rely on Beijing at all, where I don't think that was ever the case for Hong Kong after uh, the you know UK transferred it over. And there was always a plan. You know, I think the one party, two systems had a 50 year timeline on it. Now, of course, trying to cut that in half or so, but still, um, it's, I think it's just a completely different situation for the most part. Yeah, that's true. And they, they, it's basically, they're connected or pretty damn close. I guess Hong Kong is an island, but yeah, they were. Pretty I think close. there are some uh, like land areas that are shared between the two. Uh, I know that Hong Kong, most of it is kind of off on its own, but I do think there's some land shared between the two. I had a quick question about Taiwan. Are they nuclear capable? Do they have uh, nuclear weapons? I, they're not supposed to, uh, yeah. not as far as I know. Uh, now they, you know, they've developed submarines. Uh, these aren't nuclear submarines; they're diesel power submarines. My guess is that they probably aren't capable of firing uh, the American Trident. Those are the submarine uh, nuclear missiles. I think that for warplanes, they have F-15s and F-16s, which aren't nuclear capable. But you know, they. I think would probably fall under the U S nuclear umbrella to some extent where at least if they were attacked with a nuclear weapon, the U S would respond uh, against the attacker with a nuclear weapon. Yeah. It would be pretty nuts of China to try to nuke Taiwan, but I'm just thinking out of, uh, right. out of self-defense, and, if Taiwan had one of those, China would probably leave them alone. And and if you think about it too, you know, China views Taiwan as a renegade province of China, right? This would be like if uh, Hawaii declared independence. Do you think the U.S. has gotten new Hawaii to get them back in compliance or they're going to go in there and, and you know, force it another way that doesn't completely destroy uh, the, the entire society because you, you claim it's a part of your country, right? Would you nuke your own people, your own country? I don't think so. If that was America's only chance and way of getting it back, I, or the United States, yeah, I think the United States might do anything. They're pretty nuts, man, like what they did in the uh, – uh, well, I mean, they didn't nuke them. But, you know, it was pretty awful what they did in Waco. You know what I mean? Like it, the <laughs> the United States empire doesn't uh, – are they just going to go outside of Taiwan and play dolphin noises and the sounds of rabbits being slaughtered for like 40 days and 40 nights? Blockade of the island, man. It's kind of what yeah. we're talking about, though. That that would be the, the way to go. Well, you were mentioning like uh, ammo supplies. So that's that's talking about you just straight up munitions. Right. And then we've got nuclear option is is biochem warfare, like just completely out of left field. And is there any other technological leap that's yet to be you know um unleashed somewhere on a war front uh, like for the most simplistic version you know you've got like laser weapons or pulse energy weapons or or something of that nature like would that level that playing field and is anyone anywhere near, near close to that or is the primary concerns really still just nuclear well, i mean that's a big question because you know i i guess 
I don't know. I know the big one people like to talk about is a rail gun, which mm-hmm. from my understanding is just not a particularly effective weapon, particularly on a ship because it's a straight line fire weapon and ships bob up and down. Right. And so maybe for like a coastal defense thing, but certainly not for an offensive war. As far as lasers go, I mean, I've seen videos of them like downing drones with lasers that they, you know, these are just basically giant mirrors and ways to dread sunlight that they have on a couple of destroyers, but they can take down drones. And I'm sure if they could like focus it right planes and, and other things with these kind of, you know, laser technologies, yeah, but, but um, ultimately the, the magnifying can... glass in the sun versus the nuclear bomb. It's, it's yeah. still not a, uh, an apples and apples kind of situation. Well, I was going to say just like, as kind of a joke, but kind of not, I mean, it's illegal to fucking use a laser pointer at an airplane because you can blind a pilot. So I think <laughs> <That's> it... <laughs> the, that'll be the defense. They just get everyone out on the shoreline with just laser pointers. Laser pointers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Take out the kamikazes. Uh, at the same time, I guess, you know, they're, they're probably working on a lot of space-based systems now that they got the space for. So who knows, you know, lasers and direct energy weapons. However, the U.S. military industrial complex in its current state it is pretty incapable of doing anything. If you look at the F-35, if you look at the Zumwalt class destroyers, if you look at the literal combat ships, these are all new weapon systems that have completely flunked all their tests. Uh, so, you know, that maybe they're trying, I guess my doubt is that the Americans have them. The nuclear weapons are, are still, you know, one of the top, uh, you, you know, the ultimate weapon at this point, they're, you know, increasing their nuclear posture in the Asia Pacific, uh, particularly with this AUKUS agreement, they're going to, uh, build, uh, Australia nuclear powered submarines, which of course can one day be equipped with, you know, nuclear missiles and, and so, you know, the the actual warfare, I think they really look at the ultimate weapon, the game changer being the newts. Uh, but at the same time, I'm not sure if they, you know, feel like they have maybe some new weapon system that's really proficient that that would change the, the balance of the war. And I mean, just in my opinion, even if we came up with some wild fucking weapon, if China still has a nuke, they they're still pretty damn defensible. Like even right. if we came up with some crazy deadlier weapon, like nukes can still end the world. So. Yeah, I guess, you know, two, two things to add one, you know, whatever the U S military capabilities are, it's not really as important as what the U S politicians think those nuclear or whatever their military capabilities that Congress thinks that they are and whatever the Pentagon thinks that they have. So if they feel like our missile defense system is a hundred percent going to shoot down all incoming nuclear missiles, then maybe they go ahead and launch a first strike nuclear attack. Now, uh, those systems are not that good, and nuclear weapons would certainly get through, but how the U.S. government evaluates that, you, you know, is really what's important when trying to factor in what the U.S. government would, would end up doing. Um, and then my Probably other point was bunker. the missile defense systems really don't work, and China has cypersonic missiles now that w- would certainly uh, be able to bypass uh, um, America's missile defense to the extent that we have it. That's wild, man. Uh, what do you think, in your opinion, how is the American Empire doing? Like, uh, how much how much longer do you think 
We're on a scale top. of ten, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like a three. <laughs> uh it's it's bad uh if you look at the middle east right now um you know china is the you know party coming in and helping iran and saudi arabia re, you know reunite their relationship uh you know there's going to be increased trade going on between those two countries uh, if you look at you know major u.s moves in the middle east they're chill trying to overthrow bashar al-assad in syria all the Arab states, uh, Turkey is going to have talks with the Assad government. So U.S. NATO member Turkey is going to meet with the Assad government in Syria that the U.S. is trying to overthrow, and those talks are going to be facilitated by Russia. And so the, the U.S. empire, I think, in a lot of ways is crumbling at this point. Now, how that plays out in a couple of years... Uh, who knows a lot of it will depend on how uh, effective that china and russia prove themselves to be able to at least you know kind of flex their geopolitical muscles uh the the invasion of ukraine hasn't gone particularly well for russia Uh, i think that the the u.s policy has been so much worse that it's kind of covered up a, a lot of russia's failures in ukraine uh but i really don't think Putin intended to to fight a war here where tens of thousands of Russian soldiers end up dead. They ends up spending, you know, tens of billions, if not a hundred billion dollars. Now, a lot of Russia's military equipment fighting this long protracted ground battle in, in Ukraine, but that's what we have. Um, you know, you know, so if China and Russia make missteps, then that's going to help the U S maintain its empire. At the same time, I think the U S failures are so big and you know because the u.s has been making uh the majority of the world decisions for the past three decades uh a lot of countries are going to be able to overlook whatever russia and china do does because it's just not as significant as what the u.s does and that's going to you know facilitate the u.s empire crumbling I would say like probably over the next decade we're just going to see incremental losses and in u.s ability to uh, floods his geopolitical muscles, particularly uh, in Asia. You know, if we were playing a game of civilization, right? It sounds like an economic win may be out of the question. A military win might be more of a stalemate, but can we still pull, pull through on like a cultural win? Like can American culture pull us out of anything or is it just, you know, dead in the water? I mean, you know, American culture probably has a little bit of pool, let's say, in Eastern Europe and countries like that. But if you look at Africa, if you look at the Middle East or what, you know, is generally referred to as the global south, I I, I don't think there's a, a lot of respect for America. Uh, Ted Snyder, who's a writer at antiwar.com, the Libertarian Institute, has been doing a great job of going through. And he has a really great article coming out on Monday where he's, you know, goes through and says, look, the perception of Africa is that U.S. neocolonialism has robbed the, the you know, continent for decades on end. And Russia and China have stood opposed to that. And even if that's not 100% the truth of what's going on, because that's the perception, you know, those countries are going to increasingly align with Russia. And and we've seen that, you know, the U.S. was supposed to isolate Russia from the rest of the world with the sanctions that they put on last year. Um, 
In fact, when the U.S. announced their sanctions on Russia last year, uh, the White House was, was afraid that they went too far and that they dropped an economic nuclear weapon on Russia. And we've seen the ruble being one of the best performing currencies against the dollar uh, over the past year, that the Russian economy has very, uh, you, you know, they, they, they've had some setbacks, but they have weathered the American sanctions. And this is largely because, you know, Brazil, uh, Africa, India, Pakistan, China have all refused to go along with the American sanctions. And, and so, you, you is know, there is there any Russian, um, you know, sort of like market manipulation at play here? Like, are they they're manipulating their currency at all to make it look like that? Or is, are they playing the game the same way as anyone else does? I think they're mostly playing the game as same game as everyone else does. Now, I'm sure there is market manipulation in, in trying to make it look like, you know, the the economy is doing better than it is as I'm or like sure the ruble's holding up does. more than it really is and things right. like this. But if you actually look Not at the like Russian the oil export, <laughs> if you look at Russian oil exports and the price that Russia is exporting the oil, they've been able to maintain or actually increase the, the revenue uh, from oil. And that's because they're just selling more to China and particularly India, but also Turkey too. Uh, there, there's a lot of countries buying Russian oil, even though the U.S. has sanctioned it. And they're buying it at a discount. My understanding is India is buying it at a discount and then reselling it to Europe. So so you brought up oil. This is actually something that I, I have absolutely no insight on. I feel like a, a complete naive you know, noob on this. But when the, Biden came in, a lot of people said that we just basically stopped doing any sort of onshore or even offshore drilling um you know stateside and that now all of a sudden we went from a net you know net positive of oil reserves to net negative and we have to import it all versus previously where we were able to actually have stockpiles and maybe even export how much of that is true how much is rhetoric and what is our position strategically now versus what it was you know four years ago so you know the Biden administration definitely has a di uh, different posture towards oil and you know fossil fuels than the trump administration so i i do think that you know they, they did take some steps to uh shut down some or you know any maybe a future oil project that was going to happen well now it didn't get a permit to do something and so it's not going to happen but we there there has been a lot of oil projects that the biden administration has moved forward with if you uh look at anybody who's not a democrat not somebody who's going to vote for joe biden but somebody on the the left who's really principled they will have a whole list for you of policies where joe biden has you know what 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 they see as contributed to to climate change and uh you know drilling for oil and stuff like that at the same time the biden administration has uh taken a lot of oil and, and fuel out of america's strategic reserves uh, a large part of this is because you know with there, there were a lot of systems in place prior to the russian invasion of ukraine and the american sanctions on russia where you know russian liquefied natural gas was flowing by pipeline from Russia to Germany. Well, once that shut off, you know, other fuel sources are needed. And so the America starts to take uh, fuel out of its strategic reserves in order to bring down the global price of oil. Uh, so, it, you know, it's not hitting our allies so hard and, and stuff like this. So, you know, there, there's true too that we have depleted our strategic reserves to some extent, but uh, this isn't where I'm the, the most knowledgeable on and could get into a ton of details about the oil market and everything. It's are, really complicated. Are these the same allies that aren't paying their full weight uh, uh, worldwide as well? 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, I think still, even with the Russia invasion of Ukraine, there's something like eight of the 30 NATO member states actually meet the uh, requirement in NATO that you spend 2% of your GDP on defense. And 2%. yeah, these are the countries that we're helping out with. Yeah, that's wild. 2% of their GDP on self-defense. That's pretty nuts. Uh, that's not that's not even that much and none of them i mean imagine that's you teaching your kid hey two percent of the time you know keep your keep your hands up in front of your face (laughs) you know yeah yeah i mean uh, theoretically like i hear so many leftists talk about um places like sweden denmark norway these kind of countries is um about how they spend their money instead of on war they spend it on the citizens so that they can go and have these like wonderful welfare states and things. And they never look at how the United States has basically been Europe's self-defense. And it, it, they don't have to spend any money on self-defense. What, at what we've point? Been their military for the most part. Well, there, there's almost like an Atlas shrug scenario that, that could come up, right? Like an, like an Anne Rhine's sort of like, well, we're just going to take all of our defense and all of our money and our tanks and our and our troops and everyone's coming home. Everyone's just going to line up around oh, the U.S. God. border and you just, just like a hard on thing, <laughs> and like you'll miss us when our when we're gone kind of thing. Now, obviously, I don't think that's how the world works, because us having a presence in all these countries on one hand. Yeah, sure. It makes you know the world more secure and it gives us influence. But man, they make money. Right. And like we build big expensive bases to be permanent fixtures a lot of the time like like i was in the military when we started you know the operation iraqi freedom where we were going to temporarily set up bases and train them to those bases they were building where you know they were thick and deep and they weren't going anywhere that thing was going to be there for as long as it possibly can and in some regards i almost see the u.s military as like a mcdonald's where you think that their specialty is burgers but their specialty at least back when i think they might have changed the strategy since then but for a while it was like real estate and owning all of like the prime real estate in the strategic areas and i feel like there's a some aspect of that to what we do as well so it's not just all we're here to protect you it's like we're here because this is a sweet ass piece of land uh and it's just like a nice little area to kind of have a strategic uh strong point but if we did retreat from everything, does the world just go to shit immediately? Or do we just have so high of an opinion of ourselves that we think we're protecting everyone, but we're just pissing them off? I mean, so there's two European countries that do have nuclear weapons. There's the European Union. Just because the U.S. wasn't in NATO doesn't mean that, you know, there couldn't be a collective uh, European defense agreement uh, without the U.S. that has a, a nuclear umbrella. So, you know, I think if you were to talk to somebody who lives within what 100 miles of washington dc they would probably have a full-on meltdown if you talked about leaving nato donald trump who was on every side of every issue who you know would one day talk about oh maybe we could leave nato and the next day talk about how oh nato should be you know expanded to help the u.s fight wars in the middle east right uh whenever he said something like you know i want to get rid of nato there's you know a collective meltdown among the establishment because you know, they realize, I think, how central the the whole NATO framework and, and the idea that the U.S. has to have all these, you know, forward mm-hmm. operating bases in Europe and all these deployments is to 
you know, maintaining their position, all the funds, you know, the trillion dollars that goes to the Pentagon every year. And, and so they don't want that to be questioned whatsoever because they know how flimsy it all is. Now, there, there would probably be some significant things that happen in the world if there was a major American retrenchment. I'm not saying that, you know, there would be catastrophes and nuclear war breaking out or anything like that. But, you know, maybe some countries where the U.S., the, the, the government was only in place because the U.S. propped it up. If the U.S. leaves, then in a couple of years, that government probably will fall. And if that government was brutal, there's probably going to be reprisals. That's not a good thing. I, I don't want a bunch of people to get killed or imprisoned for political reasons. Uh, but at the same time, the, the U.S. has been backing this all over the world. And, and so there are consequences for actions. Well, and, and, and a devil's advocate. A devil's advocate on that note where, like, I don't think, at least on this call, I don't think any of us necessarily want someone to go to prison over just purely political reasons. But but when you say political reasons, it also sort of neutralizes and sterilizes something as if, oh, just because I was in party A, I go to jail or I get beheaded because you're in party B. But a lot of that political power kind of in, infers, like, this Barisma-style nepotism and this Barisma-style you know, sort of corruption. So it's not just, again, devil's advocate here, but it's not just, oh, they go to, you know, prison because of political reason. Well, you know, they use that political power to do all sorts of corrupt things. And that's kind of the thing that makes everyone mad. And I, I guess the, the end of this question, which uh, is more theoretical than anything, but it's, it's almost like, what harm would there be in leaving areas so that they have to like ask us to come back as opposed to us being there and saying, trust us, you don't like us here, but we're here for your own good. Why not just pull out, wait for something to go, you know, uh, wait for basically like Iran to be overthrown again and then come in. Although that's sort of, that was sort of what the U S is doing too. No. Yeah. I mean, if you look at, you know, countries like South Korea, uh, the U.S. is able to exert a lot of political influence in that country because it maintains a massive military garrison there. You know, there's thousands of Koreans that are employed by the U.S. Uh, and just, you know, the whole economy uh, of Korea is, you know, in a lot of ways based around the, the U.S. military bases in that country, uh, the U.S. sending weapons and support there. And so I think if from the, the perspective of Washington, if you have those standing like military garrisons in all these countries, it essentially guarantees that you have a good amount of political influence in those countries where, let's say, the U.S. military isn't there. The U.S. doesn't have that political influence. If we look at a situation like on the Korean Peninsula under the Trump administration, uh, the, the president of North uh, South Korea, excuse me, really wanted to have uh, some kind of lasting resolution to the Korean War, established some kind of peace with North Korea, and American sanctions got in the way. South Korea couldn't uh, hold as many talks as they want to, set up the, the diplomatic offices they want to in North Korea because of the American sanctions. And so if you, uh, if, if you don't have the American empire set up in South Korea, maybe South Korea goes ahead and, and just cuts a deal with North Korea and then there, there's no reason for the U.S. to get invited back in. So we lose that uh, reason to, to be involved in the region. And, and that's part of the reason, I, I think, why we, from Washington's perspective, again, we maintain our bases in all these countries rather than if there's a crisis, we'll deploy there and go in. Well, what's in your in your opinion, what's the worst case scenario of that to 
uh, come to full fruition. U.S. completely pulling out of South Korea. South Korea makes their own deal with North Korea um, and become starts to become more sympathetic to North Korea. Do they just start immediately loading up South Korea with nukes? And now it's like, uh-oh, we shouldn't have done that? Or is there are there some other scenarios that play out that, that don't go that route? I mean, I think you could just see detente on the Korean Peninsula. I mean, North Korea probably won't give up their nuclear weapons anytime within the next decade. But if there's real peace between the two Koreas, maybe you could see North Korea, you know, not look to modernize its nuclear arsenal. And as its nuclear weapons start to age out, you know, kind of, uh, you know, uh, dismantle their nuclear program that way over an extended period uh, of time. And, and so I really don't see it, you know, anything negative coming about if uh, South Korea were to cut a deal with North Korea. The, South Korea is dominant. You know, they have uh, 50 times the GDP, several times the population. And other than uh, nuclear weapons, they, they they hold a vast military superiority over North Korea. But does that, all that go away if the U.S. were to leave? Doesn't that 50x GDP evaporate? Doesn't all of those jobs kind of evaporate in a big way? I think there'd be, you know, the, the South Korean economy would probably have some reorientation, right? You know, there's tens of thousands of Americans there, uh, you know, we're, we're sending weapons there all the time. Uh, at the same time, you know, Samsung isn't going anywhere. All these other Korean tech companies and, and Korean companies that, you know, create so much wealth for the Korean people, you know, they'll find a way to, to continue and move ahead. And, uh, you know, the, the reason they're so dominant over North Korea is in part because of North Korea's failure right communism doesn't work a centrally planned eco economy in pyongyang is never going to be as wealthy as you know a south korean economy that allows for freedom and capital investment and, and for you know the the people to to continue to you know seek out what they want in life and develop new products and things like that rather than you know most of the people just living as hand-to-mouth farmers uh and giving anything extra they, they thing they make to the the central state you know like south north korea is behind south korea in large part because of their own government's failures yeah it makes sense <clears throat> um one thing that I'm finding interesting that's going on um, in the Middle East is it seems like China is trying to broker peace where there hasn't been in a lot of different places. And I heard about this. I haven't actually read any articles about it. I wonder if you know anything about this that like actually like Saudi Arabia and Iran are now. So Shia and Sunni are starting to have some sort of peaceful negotiations. Is that what's the what's going on there? Yeah, so there was about a week of talks that happened in China between uh, Saudi and Iranian diplomats, and they came forward with the the framework of an agreement. This we'll see how it plays out, right? Like, if I'm an optimist, this is going to repair relations between Saudi Arabia and Iran. If I'm a pessimist, this is you know China trying something that that's not going to play out in a couple of years where we're going to be right back where we were. But the plan is for uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran to reopen embassies in each other's countries. There's two agreements. One's the security agreement, I believe, from 2001. And then there's a cultural agreement from 1997 that Saudi Arabia and Iran uh, agreed to put in place. Now, I think this deal is held together by China saying that 
you know, we will hold any party responsible uh, that doesn't live up to this agreement. And you do have to wonder what China means by that, because they probably don't have the military leverage to force Saudi Arabia to, to do anything. But there is significant economic ties between Tehran and Beijing and between Riyadh and Beijing. And so, you know, if, if China is willing to, you know, kind of flex and leverage its economic ties with these countries to get them to comply with the agreement, that may be enough uh, to really cement this. And if you you do repair relations between Iran and Saudi Arabia and the Middle East, it, it really changes the dynamics. First off, it makes an Israeli attack on Iran far less likely uh, you know, I think Israel would almost have to use Saudi airspace to attack Iran. You know, they've even talked about uh, uh, Saudi helping uh, Israel with an attack on Iran in the past, as uh, particularly under the Trump administration, they really tried to normalize relations between Saudi Arabia and Israel. Uh, you could clean up the, the situation in Iraq quite a bit, where uh, a lot of the killing that still goes on is between the Sunni and the Shia in that country and you know the the Iranians have a lot of sway over the Shia and the Sunni are backed by the Saudis and then of course you got the war in Yemen as well and the war in Syria where Saudi Arabia and Iran are on different sides and if they're willing to come together and talk then hopefully this could help to to relieve these situations so you know th there's a lot of potential good that could come from this deal it could also be a complete flop and it, only time will tell uh, I'm glad you mentioned Yemen because I am always curious. Uh, Yemen is always in the back of my mind. Uh, what's the latest? Do you know anything that's going on there? Is it still just as terrible as ever? Or things gotten a little bit better? Or Yeah, good news. Things have gotten a little bit better in Yemen from my understanding. Uh, Saudi Arabia has really scaled back their air war in that uh, country. The UAE in particular is still backing this group on the ground called the Giants Brigade. This is the repurposed Al-Qaeda and the Arabian Peninsula fighters uh, that the UAE bought off five or six years ago after they seized seven towns in the south of Yemen. Uh, so they're still fighting the Houthis. They're still fighting going on. The war isn't over. Uh, even if Saudi Arabia officially ended their war, that wouldn't mean that there would be an end to fighting in Yemen. Uh, there's a significant Southern separatist movement in the country that, you know, rejects the rule of the Houthi government who have ruled that country almost for 10 years now. Uh, but at the same time, the blockade has been reduced. There's flights occasionally going in and out of Yemen. There are occasionally cargo ships, commercial cargo ships that reach Yemen's ports. And so these are big steps to improving the, the lives of the people in Yemen. Uh so th this does seem to be moving in the right direction. However, until like an official, you know, kind of deal is done in Saudi Arabia is done with their war in that country officially, uh, then, you know, it, it all could sw switch back in a matter of days, really. Okay. All right. Yeah. And I mean, that is that mostly besides the religion thing, I guess, between the Sunni and Shia, I was going to ask, is that like the big tension between Saudi Arabia and Iran? I mean, they've been kind of fighting that little proxy war, right? Through, so I would say not. I would say Syria is uh, or Iraq are, have played out far more as proxy wars between uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran than Yemen. Iran has given uh, the Houthis 
who are Zaidi Shia, which is a pretty different branch of Shia than uh, what the Iranians practice. Uh, but at the same time, that there has been some support going from Iran to the Houthis. Iran probably has some ability to leverage uh, you know, that support to try to get the Houthis to comply with some kind of deal or make a deal with the Saudis. Uh, at the same time, when the war in Yemen started, Iran gave the, the Houthis a lot of advice that they completely ignored. And so that they are by no means like a Hezbollah-like group that uh, Saudi Ara uh, that Iran could really exert a lot of influence over. Uh, so I, I, I don't know. I, to some extent, Yemen has played out as a proxy war, but I think a lot of what happened in Yemen was when Mohammed bin Salman was in his late 20s, he saw an opportunity for a quick military victory after he had just been appointed as Saudi Arabia's defense minister. And so he launched a war in Yemen. And he called it decisive storm because they're going to win in a couple weeks. And now we are eight years later. And what's he going to do? Admit that it was a failure or just keep fighting it because you know, the people of Yemen don't have a whole lot of ability to fight back. Well, they fucking do, apparently. <laughs> well, I, I mean, mean, they don't, know, they do. <laughs> right, exactly. Like, yeah. if you look at the number of bombs that have hit Yemen over the past eight years versus the number of uh, Houthi missiles that have crossed into Saudi Arabia, it, it's probably a, a thousand to one, right? Yeah. So relatively, especially for, like, the Saudi uh, princes who are all fairly safe th this is an extremely low risk conflict for them interesting um why was why was yemen so well i kind of know the story behind that right so yemen had a kind of pseudo president slash dictator right that was friendly with uh with the saudi government and then that, was there a coup that happened? Could you could you give us a little refresher on that? Yeah, so this was like during the Arab Spring. This is a long time ago, uh, where there was protests in Yemen that rose up against uh, Salah, who was the president of Yemen, who you know after uh, a good period of time was on good terms with Saudi Arabia, with the United States. The United States gave him a lot of money through the first decade of the terror war, uh, allegedly to fight against Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, but Salah used that to fight against local groups in Yemen, including the Houthis. So when uh, you know the people rose up in Yemen in, to remove Salah in, I believe, 2012, there was an assassination attempt against him uh, that left him pretty injured. And I believe he went to Saudi Arabia after that assassination attempt. And then the organ, uh, the U.S. under Hillary Clinton uh, organized elections in that country. They held one man elections, elected Hadi as the president of Yemen. And from there, Salah actually came back to Yemen and aligned with the Houthis, and then together they took over uh, the capital city. And at that point, Saudi Arabia started bombing Yemen because they felt like they no longer had. Uh, I, I think a lot of it was opportunity from, again, Mohammed bin Salman's standpoint. He saw an opportunity to go in, win a quick victory in Yemen, and you know claim, claim it as a major victory. But there, there also was a sense that you know, the, the new government of Yemen wasn't as compliant with the Saudi whims uh, as Saleh would have been. At the same time, uh, in 2014 and 2015, after the Houthis took power and before Saudi Arabia started bombing uh, Yemen, you can actually find where our current Secretary of Defense, who was then the head of CENTCOM, 
was working with the Houthis to target Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. So it's not like uh, the Houthis were some group that was bent against American uh, colonialism in Saudi Arabia. Uh, really, you know, they were just a little bit more independent. They probably are now. Yeah, that's kind of what we that's kind of what we do. Yeah, we turn off any potential ally or we get an ally and we fill their head full of promises, uh, kind of like the Kurds. And then as soon as they're not like geopolitically, it's not in our strategy anymore. We completely throw them under the bus. And I honestly don't understand, honestly, why the United States continues to do that, because who the fuck is ever gonna gonna listen to us again or or is gonna team up with us or have any strategic uh, like alliance with us because almost every time we're that that comic from the peanuts where uh that girl pulls the football you know what i'm talking about that Mm -hmm. that's the united states every time but they still but they still uh you know find groups that are willing to do it you know desperate people are are willing to cling to anything and you know when you're an oppressed group and somebody comes in and starts offering to support your campaign even if they usually screw you you know that's probably at least gives you a fighting chance a little bit of hope and so people take yeah. it um i, I- well, I got a I got a quick woo woo one before we we start wrapping up because this this is a woo woo channel a little bit, right? We are. We get a little woo woo here. So, so I'm curious. Let's say, um, you know, technological warfare considerations aside, let's say that cold fusion is discovered, or you know, Nikola Tesla free energy. Someone figures out how to tap into the ionosphere, and aside from making death rays, does that uh, usurp the power? and wealth that the middle east has does that change the the global you know the economic and the global sort of like military scape um by that changing or or does the middle east have some other sort of like huge sway outside of just an insane amount of you know natural oil oh man that's a tough question because there's israel which is America's most important ally because of the Israel lobby. And so but, even if but there's let me not just, energy, let me they're, they're still going to like make sure that America has to, there's always going to be some excuse to at least remain military engaged to support Israel. Right. But go maybe, ahead. although is Israel important because of their strategic, you know, um, you know, distance to those natural resources. I just wonder if all of a sudden nobody cares about oil anymore because we have infinite energy. How much does Israel really matter? And I'm, I'm wondering that out loud. I'm not, I'm not, you know, postulating that. I'm just wondering, do they matter? Is it like we pretend that, you know, we like them and we pretend that there's a religious aspect or a moral aspect, but just like Nate was saying, Oh, you mean like there's no actual real world benefit other than like some kind of superior or moral. See you guys, you know, good luck with this. So, no, I, I think that the, I guess I called the, the political culture around Israel is so strong in the United States that we would continue to support them. Uh, I saw an article this week about how we know Ron DeSantis is running for president because he's making uh, the required pilgrimage to Israel to become oh, an American president. Okay. It's almost right? like going to Bohemian Grove, right? You got, you got to do one or the, the other. <laughs> But, you know, from a more practical standpoint, though, you could look at even, you know, why not just 
you know, keep the American fifth fleet in Bahrain. Why do we need Israel? That's right in the middle of the Middle East. You know, we have long range bombers. We have Diego Garcia in the Indian Ocean there. Do we really need to be involved in Israel in Israel to like, you know, maintain this force posture? Uh, the answer is probably not. Uh, so, I, you know, I really don't think it's about military strategy that we remain so involved in Israel. I, I will say that countries like Saudi Arabia have, I think, probably have, you know, rightfully saw on the horizon that, uh, you know, as fossil fuels are going to become increasingly less valuable as time goes on. And they have all these plans to diversify their economy. Um at the same time, I think a lot of that relies on tourism. And so, you know, will people travel to the Middle East if there's not an economic reason? I don't know. It, it certainly would make all these countries far less wealthy. And, and you would think that would, you know, make the U.S. far less concerned. I know a lot of the reason that the U.S. wants to, you know, remain able to control what happens in the Persian Gulf is they, you know, if there's ever a war with China, they want to be able to prevent China uh, from gaining access to that energy. Well, if China doesn't need that energy, then it becomes a whole lot less important. So maybe you do see some American disengagement from the region, uh, but I don't think it's all built around oil anyways. So I think there's still be a lot of military activity from the U.S. in the region. And to put a little uh, conspiracy feather in that cap too, you could, I could also make an argument that if the U.S. knew that free energy was possible, they might not want free energy to exist because it would reduce the need for military presence all across the world. Um, so, like you know, we got to make those sweet Halliburton slash um, military industrial complex bucks, right? Like that, the inertia on that is is too much. Like it's a sunken cost fallacy at this point. We've put so much into banking our economy on winning wars and the spoils of war like basically anytime there's a major depression in the united states they bounce back from it in some weird way through warfare right through you know kind of like um bringing back the the spoils of war just raising up funds and using that as a distraction but it almost seems like the most predictable formula so anytime there's a huge sharp drop in our economy we go and blow somebody up and then magically money starts flowing in for a short amount of time. Right. And I believe this was after the cold war where there were people who wrote articles saying that America would have to invent a new en enemy because so much of our economy was wrapped up in the military industrial complex that we couldn't sustain the economic hit if we started spending significantly less on our military. So, and look, I, I do think our elite art, I, I'm not, I don't think, that they've invented a free source for energy and they're just not giving it to us because I don't think they're that smart. But I do think they're evil enough to invent it and then not share it too. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I do think they're that evil. I just don't think they're smart enough to pull it off. Interesting. Okay. And um, I guess maybe one of the last thing that I was going to ask you is like, what are your thoughts as far as like, we can clearly see like our banking system is starting to collapse. Uh, then we can also see that across the pond, um, our adversaries are starting to team up and trying to uh, make alliances uh, financially and different things like that. What do you think the United States play is? And how does this involve, if it does involve, like CB, CBDCs? Do you think that that is going to be America's play to try to have like uh, one type of uh, financial like is this going to be their financial recovery or their way of kind of playing around with their money 
what are your thoughts on any of that? So I have no idea what they're going to do just because I, I I think they'll make wrong decisions and make a lot of mistakes and then, you know, make mistakes compounding on their mistakes. Uh, you know, if it were me, I, I focus on retrenchment right now, right? Like cut the military budget as much as possible, bring as many troops home as possible uh, and all these sanctions and, and global financial campaigns try to open up as much trade as possible and uh you know engage with the world on an economic level rather than a military one but more than likely we're going to do the opposite more sanctions and for those who don't comply increasingly try to use our military to enforce them um you you know i I think unfortunately for the u.s a lot of these countries are at least uh, for our political establishment a lot of these countries that we want uh to to make enforce our sanctions are just too massive to you know, fight a war against, you know, Iran isn't Iraq, Iran isn't Syria. You you can't just get in an easy war with Iran. You know what I mean? You can't just leave 900 troops and occupy a quarter of Iran. That's never going to happen in the way it did with Syria. So I, I see a lot of mistakes. Uh, I did an episode of my show recently talking about how the Biden administration has really put us on the precipice of four wars here, North Korea, Iran, Russia, and China. I think it's possible that we end up in a war with any one of these countries and not necessarily because the administration really wanted to go to war with any of those countries, say the way the Bush administration really did want to go to war with Iraq, but um just by refusing to bat down by not understanding what these countries red lines are not understanding american capabilities i I do think war with any of these countries is possible uh even in the coming year uh year or two by then the biden administration i i'm i'm really concerned about the situation i always you know hope that maybe there is some global cabal and and this is more of a show for all of us uh, you know, the, the idea that sometimes. we're like on the precipice of this nuclear war uh, with Russia. But uh, <laughs> I think that gives our elite a lot more credit than they deserve. And, and they really are uh, pushing Russia towards the absolute brink of nuclear war here and, and pushing towards a potential war with China, North Korea and Iran, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I guess my last question, I don't know if you if you have one more, Thomas, but uh I guess my last question is, what do you think is, uh, what do you think the start of World War III is going to look like? And or has it already started and we just haven't acknowledged it yet? Man, this is where I wish I was a little bit better on my history. Like, when did the First World War start getting called a world war? Right? Like, how how long into all that? Because, you know, I think it's very possible that we look back on uh, the, this situation in 10 years. And we, we realized that the, the, you know, really the, the world war started last year, uh, you know, with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but you, you know, maybe that situation gets resolved and it remains more or less a, a local conflict in Ukraine. Uh, Russia ends up overthrowing the government in Kiev in the next six months. They install a friendly government and everybody just kind of lives with that situation going forward. Like that, that's not impossible. And, and this, you know, really remains a U.S. Russia po- proxy war. But at the same time, I, I don't see how, how this situation gets resolved. And uh, I do worry that, you know, we're going to look back on this time and realize that, you know, we are really in the middle of the third world war here. 
Yeah. I got an easy litmus test on that. I do think that when the U.S. starts issuing war bonds, that's a very good marker that World War Three has probably commenced officially at that point. Have I don't we? believe so. I don't okay. believe we started issuing war bonds yet. That's but good. do does a country even need to issue war bonds if it has the Federal Reserve that could print as much money as it wants? Isn't like isn't every time I go to the grocery store and everything costs a dollar more? Isn't that essentially the war bond that maybe? Although World War II, we we had war bonds and the Federal Reserve was 1913, so that was a fair full generation afterwards. It it might just be to keep up pretenses of like, all right, we got these war bonds because everyone knows I can't just print it, you know. What I mean like we got to get you to, to turn in you know your gold into the office yeah no very possible thomas any last questions brother uh no man this was incredibly informative usually we don't get to have a lot of serious conversations that don't devolve into werewolves and reptilians and stuff so this was <laughs> this was a nice uh change in pace man i, I love this this is great well, I appreciate it. I I know a lot of times I'll do these like Friday night shows and everybody's like hanging around drinking and shit. And I come on and I'm like, oh man, I'm going to ruin everybody's night. Like they're just trying to have a good time on YouTube. And here's some guy is who's going to talk about war and death for an hour and a half. But I really appreciate it, guys. This was, uh, I, I don't know. I feel like, a, you know, we, we talked about some heavy stuff, but at the same time in a way where it, it wasn't too uh, too terrible for to way to spend a Friday night. So really enjoyed it. Yeah, man. Absolutely. Thank you. I know my audience needs uh, some serious episodes too and need some, uh, some foreign policy. Uh, we need some reality in, in our, in our world too. So right. the, the I, next episode is going to be just a hundred percent dick jokes. So don't worry that yeah. the pendulum swings both ways. Yeah. And you know, since we have you on the line and because this is a woo woo podcast, we do like to, when we remember to, ask <laughs> our guests, what is their favorite cryptid? Favorite have, what? Uh, a cryptid. So like a Bigfoot, werewolf, like a dogman, mothman, like anything that you grew up with. You could even say vampires or something. Do you have a favorite, like even an alien gray, you know, something? Uh, so I, I guess I take such a, a logical position to all of it. Like, I kind of do think, you know, like somewhere out there, there are extraterrestrials. I don't know if they're like messing with us at all, though. Um, so th so that's kind of always been my position. You kind of be foolish not to think that there's not some aliens out there anywhere. I guess it, if there was one, you, you would assume that like they are taking over our like the leaders of our countries. Right. Like I, I heard somebody a while ago saying that, you know, like all these pink haired teachers are blue haired teachers are reptilians like you think they're mess they come all the way across the universe and they're messing around in the classroom with 30 kids <laughs> and they're not trying to run the entire show or something like that uh, i saw in the very beginning you guys have a clip from uh that that show people of earth which yeah. i really love i thought the first time i watched that i thought it was one of the funnier shows that you know especially in kind of our wokeism age where you actually get some really good comedy in there too uh, so, you, you know, who knows me and, and you know what? I really hope if there is like a, an alien conspiracy and they are planning to blow up the earth, like there, there is that level of bureaucracy where like the different races of aliens are like up, up in their space station, all nagging each other for not filling out the documents and the reports, right. Or not doing everything right. Um, and it's, you know, not some like, uh, Independence Day scenario where you just have like a, a mother alien who dreads everything and is just like this 
you know, maniacal being or something, but you know, you know, we'll see. Yep. We'll see. I like it, man. Thank you, Kyle. Thanks uh, guys. We appreciate you, brother. Oh, and do you want to throw uh, your plugs one more time? Where can people find you? Yeah, check out the Libertarian Institute where I'm the news editor. Uh, you can find my show, all the articles I write right there on the homepage of the website, antiwar.com. Uh, I'm the opinion editor, so check out the viewpoint section of that website in the spotlight article. Hell yeah, dude. And uh, Thomas, do you have anything to throw, buddy? Yeah, of course, man. First of all, shout out to the Bohemian Grove for this sick adrenochrome t-shirt. Uh, I, I got to wear it again, so shout out to those guys. And then uh, I just want to pump as always, my paranoid pamphlet on MK Ultra, which gives a full historical and factual background of the entire MK Ultra program uh, from its inception uh, as, you know, finding mescaline in Dachau concentration camp all the way up to the church committee and perhaps what comes directly after that. And you can find that at paranoidamerican.com at mkultracomic.com and uh, go check out my spicy memes on Instagram before I get banned again. I love it, man. All right. Thank you, Kyle. We appreciate you, brother. Thank you.